actively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, we'll hear from community member Art Hawker, who wears many hats, one of them as the town of Tustin historian. Keith Hubbard StarTalk says look up to find a patriotic trio of red, white, and blue on the 4th of July in the evening sky. Topping off our show, Farm Arts Collective Tannis Kowalchuk gives us a hint of her work entitled Decompositions. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in New York City, I'm Duahli Saikautau. Hours after the Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's student debt relief program, the president announced he now plans to use the Higher Education Act of 1965 to provide debt relief to as many borrowers as possible and as quickly as possible. Here, he calls out Republicans for what he says is literally snatching debt relief from some 16 million people. What I did, I thought was appropriate and was able to be done and would get done. I didn't give Boris false hope, but the Republicans snatched away the hope that they were given, and it's real. Biden added the proposed legislation will allow the Education Department to compromise, waive or release loans under certain circumstances, taking longer than his administration's original plan. Beginning July 1st, new laws governing what can be taught in Florida classrooms and how teachers and students can conduct themselves will take effect. From member station WMFE, Daniel Pryor reports. K-12 students won't be able to choose the pronouns or bathrooms they use. Teachers can't talk about gender and sexuality. And parents will be able to challenge any book that's, quote, pornographic starting July 1st. Rollins College education professor Jenny San Giuliano Lonsky says the problem with these new rules is they're intentionally broad and hard to enforce. I would be looking at the verbiage of developmentally and age appropriate uh, would be better defined. Additionally, looking at what is considered to be historical accuracy. A universal voucher program will also take effect, entitling every child in the state to a charter or private school education. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. Today, cell phone carriers are free to boost their signals near airports, which could have the unintended consequence of interfering with aircraft equipment and disrupting flights. It's happening on a holiday weekend when more than 4 million people are expected to fly. NPR's Amy Held reports. Telecom companies agreed to limit 5G service near airports, giving airlines more time to upgrade their equipment to withstand the signal boost. That grace period ends today, before many planes are ready. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spoke about it with NPR. The majority of the fleet has been upgraded, but there are still a lot of planes out there that have not. 5G can interfere with the radio waves used to measure distance to the ground, an important feature when the weather is bad. Some of those aircraft may be restricted from operating at certain airports under low visibility conditions. Today's deadline caps a week of frustration for flyers who endured tens of thousands of weather delays. Amy Held, NPR News. 
Ukraine says Russian forces appear to be reducing their presence around a nuclear plant that they control in southeastern Ukraine. This is NP. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Keith Hubbard has a patriotic Star Talk report for the 4th of July. Farm Arts Collective Tennis Kowalchuk gives us a hint of her work entitled Decompositions that she's performing on July 1st and 2nd. But let's begin with community member Art Hawker, who will share some local Tustin history with us. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Earlier this year, I spoke with Art Hawker, who is the Town of Tustin historian. We met in Narrowsburg at the Tustin Historical Society, which is located on the lower level of the tustin Koshekton branch of the Western Sullivan Public Library on Bridge Street. Art Hawker wears many hats, has a visual presence, and is a prominent member of our community. I am honored to share part one of our conversation with you. Uh, my name is Art Hawker. I'm a lifelong resident of Narrowsburg here. My background employment-wise was uh, police service. Uh, I had 10 years with the Sullivan County Sheriff's Office and 29 years with the New York State Police. Vietnam veteran. I was in the infantry and have lived in in town, as I say, my whole life. Uh, my wife, Pat, and we have four children, all of whom are scattered about now. Let me begin by thanking you for your service. Your background is quite impressive. Many of us, me included, recognize your face from being as part of the uh, Narrowsburg Fire Department. Well, thank you. That's, uh, yeah, I'm a been a member of Narrowsburg for 55 years, currently a county fire investigator with the Bureau of Fire. So that keeps us busy sometimes, but uh, it's it's service that I enjoy. That's a compliment to those who you give service to that you enjoy what you're doing. It's very important, the work that you do. I'm grateful that you're part of the community. What is your exact title here as a historian of the area, and how did you come into this <laughs> position? Well, as, as my title is town historian, how I came about it, it's been so long I truly don't remember, other than I probably missed a meeting and got appointed. And um, I think it was back in the 80s, maybe, late 80s or something, uh, somebody probably heard that I, I was doing family research, and next thing you know, I, I got a phone call, oh, would you be the town historian, and it's been that way ever since. Mm -hmm. You were researching family, your own family or someone else's? No, I, I was doing my own 
family research. I've always kind of had an interest in that. And uh, part of my family with the, the Daly surname apparently came from Ireland, according to my grandmother. My problem as a researcher is they were here at least in the 1790s, so there's not a lot of records that I could come across. I mean, this was still Orange County in the 1790s, so whether they came here by choice or whether they were asked to leave the old sod, who knows? But they are documented as being here, uh, lived down in Tustin by the Ten Mile River area. And then another branch of the family came from Germany. I've been very fortunate in tracing them back to about the 1500s. No counts or princes, just common laborers, but the Germans were prolific record keepers, and those records do exist that enabled me to get back that far with a great deal of accuracy. Well, that information in your family is quite precious and very impressive. I know for myself, I feel it gives a sense of respect about where you live to honor the past, know where you are. It makes life richer and interesting. But from your perspective or those that you know, why is it so important to understand the history of where you are? Well, I think it has a, a lot of bearing on, in like in my case, since I've grown up here and I have an attachment to the history, it's just fascinating to know how things got to where they are to this point. I went to the same school that my father went to, and my grandmother went to the same school district, but it was the old two-story wooden schoolhouse. My father's brothers and sisters all graduated from that school. You know, things like that, that I remember growing up, walking around town, mostly riding our bikes around town, but buildings came and went, and people that were old people then, by our standard, now in doing research and and articles, these were the people that were the prime movers and shakers in town back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, like that. So it gives you more, a lot more perspective, and it, it fills the picture out quite a bit more, I believe. Where was the school that you uh, were a student as a young person? And uh, if you don't mind me asking what your age is. Well, the school is the, now the Narrowsburg Union that was established or put up, uh, they opened up in 1929, I think it was. Prior to that, the old wooden school was on the playground. It's uh, opposite on on what is today School Street, fittingly. It was a two-story wooden structure with a bell tower, and that was taken down after the brick schoolhouse was put up. As far as my age, I'm soon to be 73. It sounds like you're making good use of your senior time. You seem very vibrant and knowledgeable and capable. Let's talk about your role right now in this room. Describe this room in the basement of the library. What's in here and what is your role? 
the room that we're in now is the Tustin Historical Society. We just refer to it as the history room. We've got a ton of information here, resources. We have collections of photos. We have assessors' records, uh, bound books with newspapers from about 1927 through the 60s. And then we have tax records. We have postcard collections that people have donated, yearbooks from the Narrowsburg Central School, just uh, all kinds of uh, historical information from different periods. There's probably more than you could digest in a, in a lifetime. Were other people involved down here in this room in keeping historic records? Tell us about the people that came before. All of them certainly... Uh, quite a uh, lineup. There was a woman named Jenny Skinner who used to write pretty prolific articles for the newspaper back in the 20s into the 30s. Art Myers, who established the Narrowsburg News, which later became the Delaware Valley News. He was a town historian and he wrote a lot of articles, everything from rafting to quarrying, the bluestone, logging. It just covered all aspects. And he was the editor of the paper, so he was involved in everything. And uh, he was a wealth of information that he put in print. Uh, Jim Burbank, who moved to this area, I guess, probably in the 40s, because he, he was living locally during... World War II, he is responsible for establishing Fort Delaware, which Mr. and Mrs. Conway are now running and pushing that forward. A local woman named Emily Halleck hand-wrote census records out at the courthouse so she could bring them back and share them with the community here. And then Beth Peck and Grace Johansson, they were probably the ones that really got the local history group formalized and became very active in promoting local history while at the same time preserving whatever records and photos and things like that that uh, were available. All those people that you just spoke of, all of their work is in this room, all of their labor? Well, I don't know if we have all of it, but certainly a large extent of it. We draw on it all the time. The local history group here, uh, we put out a publication about every three months called Tustin Roots, and it's just various articles pertaining to the local area and events, people, that sort of thing. And a lot of that information is available to us because of the previous people that collected these items, yeah. We welcome new members and... We enjoy putting these books together and getting them out there. You're showing me um, a recent edition, and is it a group effort that puts this Tustin Roots together? Yes. You know, we have several members, obviously, and uh, we take turns in writing up articles and uh, submit them for inclusion. Let's talk about the photo that's right on the cover of here there's a railroad tracks of some sort and a very unusual type of bicycle. What is, what's going on? <laughs> well, this is a 
photo of James H. Kirk, who was a station master here in town for probably 40 years before he retired. And he lived on Kirk Road, which is the street that goes down toward Pete's Market. So he would have to go to work every day at the station. So he adapted this bicycle that's in the photograph and put a wheel on it so he could ride actually on the rail and this small wheel that came out from the side was connected to the other the second set of tracks and that stabilized him so he didn't fall off the rail and that's how he commuted back and forth to work that sounds like green energy to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah mr kirk was involved in uh, many things other than being the station master he was the president of the Board of Education for a very long time. He was instrumental in when the new school opened, kind of guiding it along fiscally and, uh, you know, making sure everything was done right. His family had a a brother who was very well known. He became Father Cassius, I believe. They were very active in the local Catholic Church, St. Francis, and all around very nice family from what I can gather. My first family that I met here is Jill Padua when she was making breakfast at the um, Chatterbox on Main Street. And um, I understand her family goes back quite a way. Yes, her grandfather, Jay Frank, and Ruth Bailing, her grandparents, started out with a little bungalow colony just across the river bridge on what's now Route 652. And they were just a whirlwind of activity around, I think it was in the late 20s maybe, they established Peggy Runway Lodge, which was built in the Tudor style, just a, a real, at the time, modern hotel restaurant and it was like the center of life for the town because that town didn't really have anything right in what we would call the commercial district they had a couple bowling alleys there and all the civic groups like the chamber of commerce and those sort of gatherings they were all held over at peggy runway Mm -hmm. and uh, they'd put on Thanksgiving dinners, well, they always had guests, but like one of the older advertisements is, I think, Thanksgiving dinner, they listed all this, must have been seven courses for like a dollar and a quarter, but they were very active. Actually, before they got to that point, Jay Frank partnered with a fellow named George Ulrich, and they established a grocery store on Main Street. It was called Ulrich and Bailing which got shortened, everyone knew it as O&B's, but Jay Frank sold out to Mr. Ulrich when he wanted to establish the hotel across the river, but it it remained O&B's until it became Art Peck's market on Main Street, and then Mr. Peck and his wife Beth bought the property down where Pete's Market is now today. So, you know, it's interesting to see how these people interacted, how just things evolved over time, just little things like that. And going back to Jill's family, were you describing 
Darby Town. I looked on an old map and I found Darby Town. And I know that the Narrowsburg Bridge is Narrowsburg on one side, but it's the Darby Town Bridge in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's uh, that's the basic area. Now, Pennsylvania, when you cross over the bridge, I guess the first, I don't know, half mile or so is Darby Town. And then it goes into Atco. But way back in the 1800s, a lot of Brannings lived there. And actually on the map, you see a cluster of buildings for Branningville. So everyone got their, kind of got their name. I don't know where the Atco name came from, but Darby, uh, Branningville, obviously. Uh, there was a fellow named John Branning who was a very good businessman. He had a sawmill there. He had one up toward Equinox. And just as a side story, his place burned over on the Pennsylvania side, and he and his family moved to Narrowsburg. And he had a son named Edwin Forrest Branning. He grew up in Narrowsburg, and he got to be, I don't know, eighteen twenty. He went out west, tried prospecting, tried cattle raising. Didn't quite work out. He came back to Narrowsburg and bought a store which was in operation on the lower end of Main Street. And he developed that, and he wind up selling it. There's a brick building on the end of Main Street. You've probably seen it. He built that in 1888. But he was so successful as a businessman, he labeled himself as a dealer in everything. So if he couldn't get it, you didn't need it. One of those propositions. But Mr. Branning actually sold his interests for the business here in Narrowsburg, wound up going down to New York City in the Bronx and became involved in real estate at some point toward when he became really successful he became a millionaire back and this is back in the early 1900s he developed a type of postcard called the artino postcard it was a colorized thing and previous to that i guess the most of the postcards were coming from germany so he latched on to that made millions off of that he owned a parking garage, he owned apartment houses, he owned uh, a building where he rented a, a post office substation in the Bronx, and he did quite well, but unfortunately he passed away at a relative early age. He was vacationing in Ocean Grove or something like that in New Jersey and just collapsed. But E.F. Branning, in fact, we just wrote an article, it'll come out in Roots publication Okay, I am familiar with the name Branning. Driving around up above Peggy Runway, there's a road there. And also, when you mentioned Atco, I think there's a creek, Atco Creek, and there's a Grange Hall up above on the other side of 652, up in those hills off Plank Road, I believe. Yes, the the Grange Hall is on, fittingly, Atco Road. It was now a private residence, but... Yeah, that's one of the older buildings in the area, I would suspect. Well, I very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with us at Radio Catskill. History is part of the farm and country landscape. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your ability 
to be a part of this effort. It's really impressive. Tune into Farm and Country next week at our new time, 10 a.m. There's more of my conversation with Art Hawker to share with you on the history of Tustin. Art Hawker is one of eight contributing members of the Tustin Roots newsletter. More information is available by writing to tustinhistory at gmail.com or P.O. Box 18, Narrowsburg, New York, 12764. Farm and Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. With Tuesday being July 4th, let us look at three patriotic stars one red, one white, and one blue. Our first stop in the sky will be at the heart of Scorpius. Antares will be visible in the southern sky at nightfall and will be visible until 2 a.m. It is a first magnitude star, 550 light years away. Antares is a supergiant who is near the end of its life and has swelled to 700 times the diameter of the sun. Antares will be the only red star in the southern sky which will make it easy to spot. Next, we will turn our gaze directly overhead to the constellation Lyra. Vega is the brightest star in Lyra. It is a zero magnitude star that will be shining white. Vega will be visible all night. The star is one-tenth as old as our sun and is 25 light-years away. Vega was the pole star several thousand years ago and will become the pole star again 12,000 years from now. Our last stop will be in the southwestern sky in the constellation Virgo. Spica is the brightest star in Virgo and lies 250 light-years away. Even though it is the 16th brightest star in the sky, it can be a little hard to spot. We can use the Big Dipper to find Spica. Follow the handle stars as they arc to Arcturus, then speed on down to Spica. Spica will be visible until midnight. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Last year, the Delaware Valley Opera hosted Farm Arts Collective for Decompositions by Tanis Kowalczak. I was in the audience to experience this extraordinary, expressive theater. Here is Tanis with an audio taste of Decompositions. In these decompositions, I want to give myself over to the fungal to the microbial, to the scavenging processes of life. What does it feel like to change, to get broken down, to become humus? Oh, <laughs> I mean human. On this composting heap, it's just me, a common eukaryote. One of millions, no billions, no trillions of nematodes, bacteria, and fungi on this compost. In this place, it's just me here, now, oddly balanced on this pile of rotten, on this funny life that I am in the middle of, in the in 
between of life and death, in sickness and in health, in reinvention, in revelation. On this composting heap, it's just me, a common eukaryote, one of millions, no billions, no trillions of nematodes, bacteria, and fungi on this compost. In this place, it's just me and those birds. More information for July 1st and 2nd performances is available at farmartscollective.org. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Keith Hubbard. Special thanks goes to our guest, Art Hawker, the town of Tustin historian. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, or online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hi, this is Laura Flanders, and you can catch The Laura Flanders Show, which I produce right here in a cabin in Sullivan County every Monday night at 7 p.m. on Radio Catskill. You'll hear interviews with social critics, artists, activists, and entrepreneurs, forward thinkers who are building tomorrow's world today. Deep conversations about change with the leading thinkers and doers of our time. That's The Laura Flanders Show, Monday night, 7 p.m., right here on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Francis.